started a series last week uh, called A Classic Christmas and uh, told you that I'd be taking a journey through uh, It's a Wonderful Life, the movie, and uh, uh, we would be studying the concept of Advent. And so before we just jump right into that, let me ask you, how many of you have seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life? If so, let me, uh, uh, probably 90% of you, I figured that. And even those of you that may have not sit down and watched the whole thing accidentally stumbled across a part of that part, black and white movie. It's been turned into color now, but uh, at least seen some part, even if you didn't know what you were looking at. It has been recognized by the American Film Institute as one of the hundred best American films ever made. It's considered a holiday classic. It was actually on TV last night. I didn't see it, but people started texting me because they knew that's what I was going to be talking about and saying it's on TV right now. It's the story of a maturing young George Bailey who in his youth dreams of going to the university. He dreams of getting his education. He wants to do something big. He wants to be somebody in this world, somebody big enough that he doesn't think He can become by remaining in the little bitty rinky-dink town of Bedford Falls. And he longs to leave that little bitty town and all of its little bitty dreams and ambitions behind. And he wants to travel the world. He has no desire to take over his father's very small loan business. A business that his generous father set up to help the poor and the underprivileged in Bedford Falls get by to buy their first piece of property, to keep their home, or to get into their first home. His father, Peter Bailey, is holding out hope that George will push aside his dreams, push aside his youthful ambitions for the good of community of Bedford Falls, for the good of the underprivileged in Bedford Falls, and keep the business going. Because their loan business is the only thing in town that the evil power-hungry Mr. Potter has not yet taken over. It's the last stand before this greedy man winds up owning the whole community. And if George doesn't stay behind and run his father's business, then Mr. Potter will take over the entire town. George has some conflicts between his dreams and his ambitions in what is apparently becoming his life's responsibilities. In the clip that we're about to watch today, you see that struggle coming to the surface in a conversation between George and his father. I want you to watch this struggle that goes from the heart to a conversation between father and son. A struggle between youthful dreams and ambitions and the responsibility to champion a cause for the sake of the community as a whole. Watch this clip. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, my last meal in the old Bailey boarding house. Oh, my land, my blood pressure. Pop, can I have the car? I'm going to take over a lot of plates and things. What plates? Oh, Mom, I'm chairman of the East Committee. We only need a couple of dozen. Oh, no, you don't, Harry. Now, not my best habit. Oh, no, oh, I... oh, let him have the place, brother. Hope you have a good trip, George. Uncle Billy and I are going to miss you. Miss you too, Pop. What's the matter? You look tired. Oh, I had another tussle with Potter today. Uh-oh. I thought when we put him on the board of directors, he'd ease up on us a little bit. Oh, what's eating that old money-grubbing buzzard anyway? Oh, he's a sick man, frustrated, sick in his mind, sick in his soul, if he has one. He hates everybody that has anything that he can't have. 
Eats us mostly, I guess. Yeah, gangway, gangway. So long, Pop. So long. Oh, you got a match? Very funny, very funny. Put those things in the car, and I'll get your time instead of ready for you. Now, hurry up. Okay, Mom. Now, you coming later? Drop one of them. You coming later, George? What do you mean? I'd be bored to death? Couldn't want a better death. Lots of pretty girls. We're going to use that new floor tonight, too. Oh, over worse. No gin tonight, son. Oh, Pop, just a little? No, son, not one drop. Uh... Boys and girls and music. Why do they need gin? Well... Do I act like that when I graduate from high school? Yeah, pretty much. You know, George, I wish we could send Harry to college with you. Your mother and I talked it over half the night. Mm. We have that all figured out. If you Harry will take my job in the building alone, work there for four years, then he'll go. Mm. Pretty young for that job. Oh, no younger than I was. Well, you were born older, George. All right. I say you were born older. I suppose you've decided what you want to do when you get out of college. Oh, well, you know what I've always talked about. Build things, design new buildings, plan modern cities. Mm. All that stuff I've been talking about. Still after that first million before you're 30, huh? No, I'll sell half that in cash. <laughs> of course, it's just a hope, but uh, you wouldn't consider coming back to the building alone, would you? Well, I... I... Well, Annie, why, why don't you draw up a chair? Then you'd be more comfortable and you could hear everything that's going on. I would if I thought I'd hear anything worth listening to. You would. I know it's soon to talk about it. No, not Pop. I, I couldn't. I, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. The, no, I'm, I'm sorry, Pop. I didn't mean that. I, but I, it, it's this business of nickels and dimes and spending all your life trying to figure out how to save three cents and a length of pipe. I go crazy. I, I want to do something big and something important. You know, George... I feel that in a small way, we're doing something important. It's satisfying a fundamental urge. It's deep in the race for a man to want his own roof and walls and fireplace. And we're helping him get those things in our shabby little office. I know, Pop. I, I know that. I, I, I wish I felt that uh, I, I'd been hoarding pennies like a miser here in order to... Most of my friends have already finished college. I'd, I just feel like if I didn't get away, I'd bust. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. You're right, son. You see what I mean, don't you, Pop? This town is no place for any man unless he's willing to crawl to Potter. Now, you've got talent, son. I've seen it. You get yourself an education and get out of here. Pop, you want a shock? I think you're a great guy. Why, did you hear that, Annie? I heard it's about time one of you look here and said it. <laughs> I'm going to miss old Annie. Pop, I think I'll get dressed and go over to Harry's party. Have a good time, son. After this clip that you've just seen, the remainder of the movie, George winds up making the right choice, as hard as it was for him. And that right choice about cost him everything. He gives up his dreams and his youthful ambition. He takes over his father's business. He fights for the poor. He stands up against Mr. Potter. And in the process, he loses everything. But in losing everything, he finds what really matters in life. There are general themes in the movie about good overcoming evil, community coming together and making an amazing difference, family and friends being more important than power and privilege. 
But underlining the choice that George made from the moment he decided to do what his heart said was right and lay aside his ambitions and his dreams for the sake of the community, life became very difficult for him and to the point that as things began to spiral out of control, he begins to contemplate suicide and had it not been for heavenly intervention, he would have done so. But the angel says to him in the movie, He shows him what life would have been like had he never been born. In the process, George understands with a perspective shift what a wonderful life it really has been. But the reason it's a wonderful life is because George learned how to endure it. It's a wonderful life is a story about George Bailey's endurance when you make the right decisions. It's a story of endurance in much the same way Advent is a story that celebrates the patience and strength needed for enduring the challenging seasons of our life. Let me just catch you up if you weren't here with us last week. The Advent conversation is something that takes a lot of you back to your roots if you came from some liturgical church in your faith background or if you grew up like I did in an evangelical type church that didn't talk much about Advent. The concept of Advent, what it means, all of those things are new to you. And so I spent a lot of time talking about the details last week of why some churches talk about Advent and some churches don't. There are liturgical churches and non-liturgical churches. A, A liturgical church, a liturgy is basically their calendar. It is their worship order for that day and they have a liturgical calendar that lasts the entire year long. And that calendar has scripture readings and all of those things that line up with Lent and Easter and around Christmas time it is Advent that leads up to Christmas Day. The Advent season is marked with symbols like the Advent wreath and the Advent candles. But here's what happened. Most of us, if we have faith backgrounds, our roots, our churches, all go back in some way to liturgical churches. But in the turn of the 19th century, there was revival that hit America, such a a revival that celebrated the move of the Spirit of God. And in the process of that, where there was this push towards evangelism, celebration of missions and the the move of the Spirit of God and the emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit, a lot of those people came out of the liturgical churches and they, they shunned anything that was liturgical, anything that seemed restrictive or traditional or confining for the freedom of the Holy Spirit. And they wanted to distance themselves from anything that resembled liturgy for the sake of the move of the Spirit. Well, in the process, while some of that can historically be understood, in the process, they often threw out some things that maybe we should have not left behind. And one of those things that a lot of evangelical churches are coming back to is the concept of Advent. The reason is because our culture has hijacked Christmas. It has baptized Christmas in commercialism. I, I was walking through the mall, and I know it's nothing new, and I sound like an antiquated old fool probably carrying on about it, but I, I walked through a, a, a mall the other day, and I saw all the lights, all the marketing, all the stuff, and Christmas was everywhere, but I just watched this sea of people, and I wondered, does anybody in here have a clue that Christ is the first few letters of the word Christmas. It's as if our culture has completely forgotten. We have hijacked Christmas and turned it into something that is not in alignment with the Scripture. And yet, the reason I wanted to introduce new vocabulary to us 
is because the concept of Advent stands in stark contrast to the commercialized Christmas. When we understand Advent, we begin to grasp the deep theological truths that undergird this season of the year. What I have in front of me is just a, or beside me is just a, is a symbol to help us. Each one of these candles has a different color. There's significance in the green of the evergreen, the shape of the wreath, or the Christ candle that is in the middle is the white candle. The three purple candles each mean something. Officially, on the church's calendar, Advent starts today. And we, in a moment, will light the first candle of Advent, and every week you light a different candle leading up to Christmas Eve when you will light the Christ candle on Christmas Eve in our candlelight Christmas Eve service. Today's theme, theological theme in the Christmas story is endurance. How to endure with hope, how to endure with patience, how to walk through the challenges and struggles of life like George had to do and like Advent teaches us we must do in order to get to the full reward of what we are waiting for as we lead up to the birth of Christ or we lead up to the second coming of Christ, living victoriously in the between time is about enduring, it is about waiting expectantly, it is about hoping with anticipation. So I want to, I want to every week in the series, I'm going to read you an Advent scripture from the Old Testament and an Advent scripture from the New Testament. I want to begin today in Isaiah chapter number nine, uh, chapter two, Isaiah chapter two. I want to read five verses there, and uh, I, I want you to picture Isaiah typically has a lot to say uh, prophetically about the birth of Christ. He has a lot to say as a prophet years before Jesus was born, prophesying the birth of the Messiah. But this time, when Isaiah is prophesying, he's looking past the birth of Christ. He's looking past the resurrection of Christ. He's looking into a time when Jesus will return to this earth and set up His kingdom and His rule and reign forever. Okay, He's looking towards the second advent of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice, when he begins to describe what the world is going to be like in the second advent, I want you to notice... This hope. Look in this anticipation and this hope. He says in verse uh, 1 of Isaiah 2, This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, he's looking way, way to the end of time, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and nations will stream to it. Let me pause there. When Jesus comes back to this earth and establishes His kingdom once and for all on this earth, His rule and reign, His kingdom will be established on the highest mountain. This is being said in a time when people went up to the high places to worship idols and sacrifice to their idols. And He is saying when He returns to this earth again and establishes His kingdom, He will establish Himself as the God above all gods, the King above all kings, and the Lord above all lords. And His will be the highest, not necessarily a physical location, but in supremacy and sovereignty and in power, so much so that all nations, just like you read in the book of Revelation, every kindred, every tongue, every tribe, and every nation, people will be drawn to Him. Now verse 3. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of our Lord, to the temple of God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His path. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many people. Listen to this. This is what it will look like in that day. 
They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, their weapons of war will be laid down or turned into peaceful things like farming tools and things like that. He goes on to say, nation will not take up the sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That's a description. The lion is going to lay down with the lamb. There will be peace on earth and goodwill toward all men when he establishes his kingdom upon the earth. In light of that reality, here they are living in a a world of evil, a world that is torn by injustice, a world that is wrecked with poverty and sin and disease. But Isaiah is prophesying to them with hopeful anticipation about a day when he is going to return and set the record straight. And in light of that hopeful anticipation, in light of that expectant waiting for that day, he tells them, Come, verse 5, Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. He says, we are people of promise. We may be living in a life of injustice. We may be now walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Our lives may be full of sin and sorrow and sickness now. But we are a people who are possessed with a promise. We are the people of God. There is something for us to look forward to because the God that we serve is going to come and He's going to set every record right. He's going to correct every injustice. Let us live this life. Let us walk this journey with our heads held high in the midst of our struggle and endure this situation because we are people of promise that have something to look forward to. That is the message of Advent. Now, let me read a passage of Scripture from Matthew. This is a New Testament passage about Advent. And both Isaiah and Matthew are talking now about the second Advent. Not the birth of Christ, but the return of Christ. When He returns, Matthew 24, 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. I want you to notice they were going through their normal routines. They were living their life unsuspecting and God broke into their world. Just like in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, living their life, not listening. The flood took them by surprise. In the same way, when the Lord returns back to earth again, this time, people will be going about their normal routines of life And if they're not ready, it will catch them by surprise. Verse 39, And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field working, basically, one taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, working, going about their normal routines. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have have not have left his house to be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Isaiah's message about the advent was one of hope. In light of his promise of his return and what he's going to do when he comes, let it fill your heart with promise to endure what you're going through right now. Matthew says, part of enduring for the Lord's return is being prepared, being ready when He gets here. As I said a moment ago, this this week has been unusual. We received an unusual amount of phone calls this week and involved an unusual amount of lives as a pastoral staff, people who 
received the diagnosis that there was malignancy in their body or they lost, un, uh, un, they, and all, you're always unprepared to lose a loved one, but there's just uh, so many surprises this week of people who were not sick or whatever and, 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 and just tragedy after tragedy that, that left so many people in our church with a heavy heart and a broken heart. Words where my counseling and my words are not sufficient to, to, to minister to their grieving hearts at those moments. And I thought about that. I, I didn't plan the, the preaching calendar around that. I didn't know that was going to happen today. But I, I thought about those happenings, those events this week, in light of what the first candle of Advent means. It, it, it's a reminder to endure because we live in the in-between time. We live in between paradise lost because of sin in the Garden of Eden and paradise restored at the end of the book of Revelation because Christ returns to earth again. We live in no man's land in the in-between time, between creation and consummation. We are tasked with living between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. And life is tough. There is injustice. There is sin. There is heaviness. There are burdens that we carry. There is a measure of the kingdom of God. When Jesus came, He came in power and splendor. And even John the Baptist said, The kingdom of God has come. Repent. The kingdom of God has come. And yet Jesus told us in the Lord's Prayer, Pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. So how can John the Baptist say the kingdom has come and Jesus asks us to pray that the kingdom would come? Because there is part of the kingdom of God that has come. There is part of the kingdom of God that has not yet come. There is a revelation. I I am in the kingdom. I'm a believer. I'm following Christ. I live in kingdom power. But my body can still be sick. I, I, still, I'm a, I still deal with sin. I make mistakes. I fail God. All of those things. But there is coming a day in the full revelation when He returns back to this earth. The day Isaiah was talking about. The day Matthew was talking about. When in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, I'm going to be changed and I won't be sick. I can't be sick. All prophecy will be fulfilled. All sickness will be gone. And everything will be as it was supposed to be in the beginning. He will restore all things to Himself. But I live in the in-between time. How do you live victorious in the daily grind in the between time? Between the resurrection and the return. Between paradise lost and paradise restored. I was thinking about with all of the burdens as a pastor for these hurting people today that I was praying about this week and my mind went to an Old Testament story that illustrated what was on my heart. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and David has led his mighty men into battle. And and, and they are are warriors for the nation, and they have been to battle. They come back from battle, and their whole town has been destroyed. The village has been burned. Ziklag has been completely burned to the ground by Amalekite raiders. I guess you could say terrorists literally burned their town to the ground. They took their women and children, their wives, their children as slaves and carried them away and plundered the village of all of its wealth, materials, supplies. And when David returned with his mighty men, the Bible says that the sorrow was so heavy on their hearts that they wept until they were too exhausted to weep anymore. That's the description of their sorrow. They wept. These are mighty men. These are warriors. These are big, strong men who were so devastated by the loss that they weep until there was no strength left to weep anymore. They prepare to go to battle. In verse 9 of chapter 30, David and the 600 men with him came to the Basor Valley. 
where some stayed behind. Two hundred of them were too exhausted to cross the valley. But David and the other four hundred continued the pursuit. Six hundred mighty men of war leave their ravished homeland to go recapture their wives and children. And as they are on their way, they get to the Basor Valley and two hundred of them said, Sire, I can't make it. I can't go anymore. I'm too spiritually exhausted. I'm too physically exhausted. My grief is too strong. I cannot put one foot in front of the other. I don't want to quit on you. I don't want to quit on the nation. I don't want to quit on our family. But I can't do this anymore. And David said, you 200 men, you stay by the supplies. Look, the other 400 will go to battle. 1 Samuel 30, 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Baser Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. They've gone to battle. Now they're coming back. They've been victorious. As David and his men approached, he asked them, how are they? It's the heart of the pastor, the heart of the king. He said, how are you gentlemen now? Verse 22, but all of the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. The 400 men that did battle said, it's not fair. If they didn't go fight with us, if they didn't go risk their life with us, if they didn't serve with us, then they don't have a right to the plunder. They can have their wife back, they can have their children back, but they're not getting any of the stuff. And David responded this way, verse 23, no, my brothers... You must not do that with what the Lord has given us. You didn't give it this. God gave this to us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies, the King James says, tarried by the stuff, is the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. The king stepped in and said, I don't know what fair is, but under my rule and my reign, I understand that when you're doing battle, sometimes it gets so heavy, you can't go on anymore. I'm a king and I understand that there comes a day when you can't pull the sword. You've been trained for battle, you left with good intentions, but you get to the Basor Valley and you can't take another step. Life is so hard, tensions are so tough, stress is so bad, you can't lift your head. You don't want to quit. You don't want to quit on God. You don't want to quit on your family. You don't want to throw in the towel. You don't want to quit. You just can't go on today. And the reason David said, no, wait, because there's going to be another season in life when the 400 of you that are really strong are going to find yourself in the 200 because life throws curveballs to all of us. Life may be really good for you right now. And what I'm saying has no relevance to you at all. Because you're in the 400 ready to go to war. You don't understand what the 200 are going through. Who don't really want to quit. But they don't have the spiritual energy. They just can't do it anymore. Life has beat them up and beat them up. Till they don't know how they're going to go on anymore. And the king understood that. And he said if they stayed here and guarded the stuff. Stayed by the stuff. There is worthy of the plunder as anybody else. Can I tell you, the heart of King David is the heart of your father today. 
Because you may not have the strength to step forward. There are some of you that this is going to be the greatest Christmas you've ever known. You're the most blessed you've ever been. And it's going to be the greatest Christmas you've ever known. There are others of you that this is the worst season because of death or diagnosis or financial trouble or struggle in your relationship. And you don't know how you're going to make it. You're in the 200. Let me challenge you. All you have to do when you can't stick your head above water or you don't have the strength to draw a sword is just commit as hard as it is. I may not run the fastest. I may not be on the front line. This may be a season where my star doesn't shine the brightest. But I can tell you this. I'm not going to check out. I'm going to stay by the stuff. I may not pray the loudest. I may not pray the longest. I might not read the most scripture at this season of my life. But I'm not turning my back on God. I'm not turning my back on His house. I'm going to stay by the stuff. When serving God is a chore, you have to stay by the stuff. When parenting becomes hard, you have to stay by the stuff. Haley and I thought parenting was hard when they were little, getting into everything, and we were worried about them electrocuting themselves in the light socket and leaving smudges on the backsliding glass door. (laughs) Now as our children become teenagers, we're wishing that they were still sticking their finger in light sockets and and, uh, smudging the back door. Your perspective shifts as you, parenting is not easy. And when you you parent, especially trying to do it in a godly way, when parenting is hard, stay by the stuff. When you're too tired to fight, stay by the stuff. And when you simply can't afford it, stay by the stuff. Listen, there is nothing wrong with saying, I can't afford it. We act like there is shame in that statement. I talked to a a mother this week that that was trying to... Her kids saw the advertisements and wanted this for Christmas. And everybody else is getting this for Christmas. And she doesn't have it. And she felt like she was less of a mom. And I looked at her and said, There is no shame in telling your children and everybody else in your world, I can't afford it. I mean, we need to be liberated that we don't have to keep up with everybody else. And if we're in the middle of a situation and that is the reality, there is no shame. And when you can't afford it, stay by the stuff. When the diagnosis is malignancy, stay by the stuff. When there's tension in the relationship, stay by the stuff. Endure, endure, endure. Hold on. One preacher used to say, when you come to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. Endure. The message of Advent is when you're living in between the resurrection and the return, the creation and the consummation, when you're in no man's land, he's left and he's not yet returned to earth again. What do you do when you get too tired to go to battle? When your star doesn't shine bright, you don't run the fastest and you're not on the front lines, at least stay by and guard the supplies. Stand by what matters. Guard the important things of your life. Don't throw in the towel. Stay by the stuff. In Luke chapter 2, there's an old man named Simeon who's a part of the Christmas story. He is the old man in the temple. On the eighth day of Jesus' life, they brought him into Simeon, Mary, and Joseph to follow the religious ritual and rite of circumcision. When Simeon was a young man, God had given him a promise. You will not die until you see the consolation of Israel, which means you're going you're to see the Messiah. All of this waiting that we've been doing 
All the way from prophecy, you're waiting on the advent. Simeon was waiting on the first advent. He was enduring and waiting expectantly. And I, I would imagine, scholars tell us that Simeon would have been above 110 when they brought Jesus into the temple to be circumcised. Don't you think at his 75th birthday he lived in the temple, he tended to the monotony and the routine of temple life every day? Don't you think that on his 75th birthday he started to question the promise? He started wondering if if what he had in his heart was just the the, the, uh, egotistical hallucinations that this wasn't really going to happen. His anticipation and his hope had to begin to wane. And then on his 100th birthday, he had to start wondering if hoping to see the Messiah waiting on the first advent was just some egotistical hallucination or the babblings of an old man. On his 110th birthday, I'm sure he almost threw in the towel. What's the point in going through the routine of the daily rituals of temple life Waiting on something that will never happen. And yet somewhere past his 110th birthday, Mary and Joseph brought the eight-day-old Jesus in. And you can read it in Luke 2 at the praise of Simeon when he says, Okay, God, I can go now. You have kept your word. Enduring with hope and expectancy will get you through the waiting periods of life. The struggles and the heartaches and the challenges that come along with living in the between time. For those at that first Christmas in Bethlehem, Jesus stepped into the normalcy and the routine. It was a big event. People were everywhere. No room in the inn. And He just showed up unannounced. For Simeon in the temple, He was going through the routines of over 110 years of ritualistic life. And in the middle of normalcy and routine, Jesus steps in. In Matthew 24, looking at the second advent, just like in the days of Noah, to the normalcy and the routine, he's going to step in. Men will be working in the field, one taking the other left. Two men will be working at the mill, one taking the other left. In their normal routines of life, unannounced, without much to do, he breaks into human history. He broke in in his first advent. He broke in in his second advent. And those two advents remind us there can be an advent in your life right now. He can break in now, right now, into your mess. The first time he stepped into a manger, the next time he's going to step into a mountain. But right now he can step into your mess. And the advent into your life may not meet it on the world stage, but it may not go down in recorded biblical history but it may be marked as one of the most significant events of your life when God steps into the heartache and the burden that you carry right now Advent is a reminder that we walk through the valley but we do not walk alone Emmanuel is God with us He came, robed Himself in human flesh to hurt with you when you walk through this valley You are not alone I want Pastor Bear to come and help us today prepare our hearts before we leave the building this morning. I want us, as I said a moment ago, every one of these candles represents something on each day of the Advent. This first Sunday of Advent is a theological theme of enduring while we wait because it's a wonderful life, but sometimes we have to endure it. And as I light this candle, I want it to be a reminder to us that each week we progressively light a different candle. It reminds us that there is a progressive, a building 
inbreaking of the kingdom of God. His light is breaking into our life and dispelling darkness. His light is breaking into the world. His kingdom is coming in greater ways and pushing back the ground the enemy has taken. It reminds us that He has come. But it also reminds us that He is coming again. It reminds us that something is happening in the now, but there is a lot of not yet's that are coming. That we live in the in-between time. Each week we will light another candle that will lead us to the Christ candle. It reminds us what Christmas is all about. Let me leave you with one more verse of Scripture. James 5, 11 talks about the blessing of enduring. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Endure like Job, James says. God will turn it around. He's full of compassion. He's full in mercy. If you will wait, the two advents in biblical history, the coming of Him as a baby in a manger and His return as the conquering King, the first and the second advent, remind us that He can break into human history. He can break into the, the manger, the mountain, now the mess. Whatever we're going through. My heart is heavy today because there are some of you who are in the 200. You're not in the 400. You're not running the fastest right now. You don't want to quit. You don't want to give up on your family. You don't want to give up on God. You don't want to give up on life. But you're too tired. And I want to tell you today, it's okay. It's okay to be tired. It's not okay to put a mask on and run around that like you're not. And fake it. Because it'll, it'll catch up with you. He wants to walk with you through this. My heart is so heavy today. I, I really I want to do this differently. There may be some members of our prayer team today that need this as much as anybody else. And so if I ask them to come today, then they're, they're, they're going to be working and ministering and not receiving today. And so we're going to stand in just a moment. And when we do, Pastor Bear is going to begin to sing Emmanuel, God with us. And some of us need to come as families because we're tired. We don't know how we're going to make it. We need a supernatural intervention of the grace of God in our lives right now, today. And Advent tells us we can expect for that. We are people of promise. We can live that way. And I want to pray with you today. I want people to be able to pray with you today. And so when we stand to our feet, whether you're in the balcony or the floor, and you say, Pastor, I'm one of the 200 in the valley of Basor. They're too tired right now. I need supernatural grace. I'm exhausted spiritually, physically with the worry, the stress, the, all of it goes on with the holiday and the normal things of life. I need the Spirit of God to breathe on me. Supernatural grace. When we stand, I want you to come. You can kneel. You can stand. And then I'll have the prayer team that are available to lay a hand on your shoulder and pray with you.
I know you want to get out, but if you would just pause for a moment before you leave to be considerate of those who really need a supernatural touch of the grace of God today. I don't want to beg. I just have a burden. And if that's resonating with you today, I believe He wants to meet you to give you the endurance that we're talking about. Would you stand with me all over this place? Pastor Bear, lead us. And if the Holy Spirit's drawing you to the altar because you're one of the tired 200, would you come? I believe He wants to meet you here. You're not alone.